You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Four hundred years of disruptive darkness, a period of great silence in between the Testaments. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. There was no addition to God's Word in the four-century gap between the Old and the New Testaments, and in turn, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans ruled the Holy Land, as predicted in Daniel's prophecy. Some faithful Jews wrestled independence from the Greeks and later lost it to the Romans. The Jews were divided into factions, some expecting the Messiah to come when God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, bringing them to the light of the Gospel. This episode is brought to you by Brother Steve Mansfield from the Golden Grove Ecclesia. Four hundred years of deafening silence, and to create the effect, because you see how terrible it is. It wasn't quite the message of John the Baptist, like I don't think he said "boo" from the wilderness. I'm pretty sure, you know, he said "prepare the way of the Lord," but it certainly creates an effect, isn't it? And in actual fact, I the reason I used that was because I remember being influenced by Benjamin Netanyahu, and I don't know about five or six years ago, in the United Nations, he did that technique, and it was very powerful. Uh, He was saying to the United Nations that they never lifted a finger to help the Jews during the Holocaust time. And about halfway through his speech, he just stopped, and for 40 seconds, he looked at the United Nations representatives, and he he never said anything. And I thought that was the most eloquent part of his speech, just absolute silence. It was incredibly powerful. And I think that really is the whole effect as to what we're talking about tonight. That 400 years was embedded, as it were, into history to create the contrast with the amazing and powerful message of John the Baptist and, of course, the emergence of the Messiah. So we're going to be drilling down a little bit tonight on that 400 years of silence just to understand why it was put into place. And I want to start off with, I think, a little statement that really captures and encapsulates what that 400 years was all about and why it was put into place. And this is, God was preparing to speak his greatest and most powerful word to humanity, Jesus Christ. And so there's a pause, a long pause, a distinct pause to add emphasis, a powerful emphasis on that monumental message that would come forth from Jesus Christ as a contrast to that 400 years of darkness. And I think the Apostle Paul picks it up so well in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, where he says, we won't, we won't go there, but he says, God has spoken to us in ages past through the prophets. But he says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And he says that his son was in the brightness of his glory and his express image. And I think Paul almost captures this whole 400 years of darkness and then the illumination of the Lord Jesus Christ as he burst onto the scene as we were with John the Baptist. So we want to have a look at that 400 years. Because for most of us, it's a blank page. And I want you to turn to that blank page. So just come across uh, to, well, where you would find it, obviously, between the Gospel records and Malachi. 
And I just want you to have a look at that blank page because for many of us, we're, we're used to studies where we go to a particular book or a particular passage uh, and we're familiar with, with the, the context. But of course, here when we come to this blank page after Malachi, for most of our Bibles, there's nothing on it. So I've actually talked on a whole book of the Bible for, well, I've talked on a summary of the Bible, I guess, at a talk. I've talked on a book of the Bible for a talk. I've done a, a chapter of the Bible uh, for a talk, and I've also done an exhort on maybe one phrase or a series of words, but I've actually never done, first for me, a talk on a blank page. <laughs> so it's going to be more than 10 minutes, hopefully, and we're going to drill down into some of the amazing events that are actually happening behind the scenes in preparation for the message of John the Baptist and, of course, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to this blank page. You know, if you've ever done a radio program, the thing that you don't want is dead air. All right, or sometimes if you're listening to the radio, you, you, they come on, there's this silence, they come on, oh, we've had technical difficulties and, you know, we're going to resume to broadcasting as soon as possible. So this, in, in some sense, is dead air, isn't it? It's, it's a blank and it's a white page. There's no broadcast, there's no sound, there's no message. So for 39 books of the Old Testament and for the prophets and the preachers and the teachers of that era, of course, they broadcast a message very powerful powerfully to the nation of Israel. But then we get this dead air, this blank page, this white page. There's no prophet, there's no poet, there's no seer, there's no songwriter, there's no lawgiver, it's just a blank page. And it does create some concern for us, doesn't it? I mean, in today's modern technology, we've all got phones, and if you send an SMS to someone and you don't get a message back within, I don't know, 10 minutes you sort of get a bit worried because you think, well, what's happening? You know, is there some disaster? They haven't replied back to my SMS or my, you know, WhatsApp or my email. So we've conditioned ourselves, of course, to have, well, continuous broadcast and sound as part of our lives. And when things go quiet, we, we stress out a little bit. And that's really, in some senses, what God is doing here. He's putting a blank spot in so people, so the nation can stop and think and recalibrate themselves for that emerging message of John the Baptist, which was very powerful. So we're going to, have to learn a few new words uh, in this particular session. And so uh, this word here is the intertestamental period. So we're all going to say it on the count of three, all right, just to get a bit of practice with our elocution. So, all right, you ready to say this? Intertestamental. <laughs> I probably said it wrong there. Let's give it a go, okay? One, two, three. Intertestamental. That's not too bad, actually good. There'll be some harder words as we go uh, through this series as well because a very interesting historical period with very interesting people. So yes, uh, 400 years of silence. So there are a couple of prophets that actually talked about this period of time, this blank page that we have in our Bible. Uh, so two of them, of course, are Amos and Micah and they warned about this blank period that was going to come upon Israel. So Amos toward the end of the decline of the northern tribes, he gave a warning and he said, the day is coming when I will send a famine in the land, of, not a famine of bread and food and thirst, but a hearing the, of hearing, here's this sound gap, here's this radio silence, we might say, of hearing the words of the Lord. People will wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they'll run to and fro to seek it, but they won't find it. It's going to be, there's coming a blank period. And again, Micah said this as well. It's going to be night to you. It's going to be dark. There's not going to be any vision. There's not going to be any divination or any prophetic utterances. The sun is going to go down on the prophets and the day is going to be black. 
The seers shall be disgraced, the dividers, they'll all stop. They'll cover their lips. There's no answer from God. So there's a 400 blank, dark period in the history of Israel to give emphasis to the ministry of both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, from the time of Malachi, we're here in Malachi, we can see, you know, almost this last statement by Malachi here. From the time of Malachi through to the work of John the Baptist is a little bit over 400 years. John the Baptist around AD 25, so a little bit more than that. So Amos and Micah, we might turn them as minor prophets, but they warned of the darkness and the silence that was going to come. So the other thing that is particularly interesting when we create a bit of a timeline as to what was going on, you'll see this uh, end period here, uh, which is sort of marked in blue, and there's a couple of important periods. The 70-week prophecy has been triggered off by the return of Nehemiah and the building of the wall. So, 70, so there's going to be 490 years now uh, to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his death and finally to the martyrdom of Stephen, and that's the conclusion of that 490-year period. So that's been triggered off already. And so, of course, uh, Nehemiah has gone back. We've got the prophet Malachi there, who's here, our, our last Testament prophet, and, of course, he gave some, uh, some interesting warnings. We'll have a look at those. But, you know, in a sense, the last page of the Old Testament isn't actually Malachi, it's actually Nehemiah chapter 13, which is really quite interesting. We'll have a look at that. So both Malachi and Nehemiah were basically the last two individuals who provided warning and direction for Israel before it was all... And it was actually falling apart in their time as well. So there's 400 years plus of darkness. Now, Malachi here, of course, is really sort of the last message of the Old Testament. Let's have a summary of what was Malachi saying. Was he commending and encouraging the people for their faithfulness? Well, there's uh, eight questions that Malachi prompts in his prophecy and there's a reply by the Jewish people that indicate their apathy. Hence, God is going to put a blanket over it all and there's going to be no further statement until, of course, the Messiah appeared. So they rejected God's love in chapter 1, verse 2, um, and they questioned that and they said, well, where's God loved us? We don't see the evidence of it. When we looked at the history of our nation, you know, it, we don't see his providential care around us. I mean, that's quite a dramatic and really horrible statement to say as far as God's love was concerned. They despised God's name. Uh, they offered meaningless sacrifices. In chapter 2, verse 14, they forsook all their promises, their commitments they made to God. They said, oh, well, you know, if God's not going to look after us, then we're not going to keep our promise either. They watered down God's principles in chapter 3, verse 17. They robbed God of tithes and sacrifices and appropriate offerings. And they complained about life in general. Now, where have we spoken against God? Our life is not good. And that was Malachi's warning, really. He prompted all these questions for the people to analyse themselves and just bounced off them. They were unaffected by it. So God now brings this blanket down on the nation for them to really seriously consider where they were going. And, of course, quite beautifully, when we come to Malachi chapter 4, uh, we have this stream of light. It's a prophecy of what would eventually happen in the work of John the Baptist... And, of course, uh, he was the precursor to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist uh, was, was that particular individual. Chapter 3 of Malachi talks about the messenger of the covenant suddenly coming. And there in chapter 4, we've got the day is going to burn like fire. The wicked are going to be burnt like stubble. And the son of righteousness is going to rise with healing in his wings. So, you know, it's a beautiful message. He warns them about this impending darkness... 
But he says there's going to be a recovery process. And for the people of Israel, that was very comforting. Well, that's Malachi, who was in our Bibles, the last page before we get to this blank page. But in actual fact, he wasn't uh, the last chronological message. I want you to come back to Nehemiah chapter 13. Because, you know, not that we're going to cut our page of Nehemiah chapter 13 out and paste it in between Malachi and the blank page. But actually, Nehemiah, chronologically, was the last message before this 400 years of darkness. So when we come to Nehemiah, we have to wind our ways back a little bit in our Bible. Just after Ezra, Nehemiah, chapter 13, Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem. He gives us a time marker, actually, if you're familiar with it, uh, in chapter 1. But when we come to chapter 13... Uh, we'll notice that in verse 6, there's another time marker. And he came back to build the walls of Jerusalem, you remember? Put them up in 50 days. Uh, job done. But, of course, a little bit of more reorganisation for the Levites, the priests and the nation. And then he went back to Persia because verse 6 of chapter 13 says, I wasn't in Jerusalem. And he says it wasn't until the 32nd year of Archaxerxes that I came back. So 12-year gap. So he built the walls. 12 years later, he comes back to Jerusalem. And when we work that out chronologically via our timeline, that's really the last chronological message before radio silence, we might say. So what's Nehemiah all about? Well, five frightful failures. Uh, in chapter 13, this is a, a bit of a breakdown of this particular subject, he talks about separation. So Tobiah, remember if you've done Nehemiah, Tobiah the Ammonite was of course the enemy of the Jews. Well, now he's residing in the temple. And it's pretty sad for Nehemiah, he put a lot of energy and enthusiasm into building the walls and the nation. He comes back 12 years later and it's in a mess, it's all broken down. Tobiah has accommodation in the temple. It's disgusting, it's horrible. Uh, in chapter, in same chapter, verse 4 to 9, uh, worship failures, of course. Again, it, it, it all declined. In verses 10 to 14, support failures. The Levites, the priests, the teachers weren't even being supported uh, by the people, so all of that broke down. The Levites had to go back out and work to, to obtain food. Uh, in verse 15 to 22, priorities failure. The Sabbath was now a marketplace. You know, we've got better things to do on the Sabbath. Why do we want to worship God and devote that whole day to the worship of God? We can be doing better things. So Sabbath was entirely put to one side. And in verse 23 to 28, a relationship failure, God's standards were totally uh, being rejected. So when we look at Malachi and Malachi's message, and when we look at this last chapter of Nehemiah, they synergize together in their disgust at the behaviour of the nation, and God's just going to blanket that in darkness. And he's going to do it for a purpose, because he's going to create an atmosphere of readiness as far as the people of Israel were concerned. So when we come to the New Testament, people were in anticipation of the Messiah, his preaching and his teaching. So that, three, this, that blank page we had a look at, we sort of think, well, I wonder what happened there. Probably nothing important. <laughs> so tonight, I'm going to drill down a little bit and show you what was actually going on behind the scenes in order to prepare a people ready for the Messiah. So Daniel talks about, when we think about this, Daniel actually talks about this 
400-year gap. He includes in a number of prophecies. Daniel chapter 2, you know, the image of Nebuchadnezzar. That's part of history. That's part of this 400 years. Uh, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, 70-week prophecy. I want to come to Daniel chapter 11. And that was our reading tonight. And we're just going to... Uh, we don't want to go into a lot of history because, like you, I get lost in it. And, uh, you know, I forget about all the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and who is north and who is south. <laughs> so we might unpack that a little bit and make it uh, digestible. But Daniel chapter 11 is a particularly wonderful chapter. Daniel chapter 11 actually fits that blank page. He's actually describing in Daniel 11 in detail the 400-year gap and what's going to happen. So it's quite wonderful, really, when we, we have a look at this. So what we've got here in Daniel chapter 11, we've got a, I've got this heading, Angels at Work. In fact, I've got that at the top of my Bible on Daniel chapter 11 because during this 400-year period, these angels are working hard to get that whole atmosphere and environment right for John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so it wasn't a matter of the angels saying, well, the prophets are done, Israel's sort of falling apart, there's nothing for us to do. Daniel chapter 11 is an extensive chapter and it highlights what the angels were doing behind the scenes to get the people of God ready for acceptance in the Messiah. So we've got uh, angels at work. And here, of course, Daniel in chapter 2, verse 21 and 4, verse 17 says, this is what the angels do. They work behind the scenes to create readiness for a particular event. We know they're working behind the scenes right now. And, you know, how exciting has the last two, two years been? The world is more unsettled than it's ever been in history. I mean, the pressure's being ratcheted up by Mr Putin, who said, you know, I might fire off a couple of nuclear missiles and I'm going to turn the gas off as well. So nations are stressing out, people are anxious, the angels are behind the scene working everything to prepare ourselves and the world for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in Daniel chapter 11. Another page-turning exercise. Just lift the page and just have a feel of that page. This isn't 400 years of history now. You're feeling 2,300 years of history because Daniel chapter 11 takes us from the time of Alexander the Great and when you look at the last verse of Daniel 11, it's the return of Jesus Christ. 2,300 years of history on one page. It's amazing. And so the angels are, are working to uh, develop eventually the political atmosphere so that Jesus can return and install his kingdom in the place of human governments. So... You might already have this coloured in, but one of the key themes right through Daniel chapter 11 is the word stand. And what he's showing is when Alexander the Great stands up in you know, all the, the prowess and the power and the might and the military strategy that he had, this is, in essence, the calibre of the kingdom of men. They're all you know, elbowing each other out because they want a powerful position. They want to stand. And you know... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was much like that. He created this whole image of gold because he wanted that to stand up and he wanted to be something permanent. So right through Daniel chapter 11, we've got all these movements of different political powers who are trying to stand and make their stamp on history. Well, that's all going to be wiped away because I think what is so beautiful is you come to chapter 12 and verse 1 and the last two references are just so fantastic. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. This theme word stand that's all through that chapter 11 it says, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. So there's going to come a time when one of the angels says, enough. 
time for the Lord to return, everything's in place and Michael the angel is going to stand up. And the other beautiful final reference is across in in chapter 12 and verse 13. It's the final message to Daniel. And I think this is... This is where we have to take the truth and make it personal. We're involved in in all this history and the outcome. Here in chapter 12, verse 13, the angel says, Daniel, go your way till the end be, and you are going to rest, but you're going to stand. And I reckon that's a wonderful signature ending to Daniel. Faithful man, was concerned about nations and kings and powers and how's it going to outwork, and in the end... The angel says, well, all these nations are going to try and stand, but in the end, Daniel, you'll be the one standing in immortality in the presence of Messiah. What a great personal uh, encouragement to Daniel and to us. So this is uh, Daniel chapter 11. This is the blank page. This is the sort of the area that we're in, and we're going to have a look at a bit of a timeline as to what this is all about. So here's the snapshot in simple terms of what all these powers are doing. So we've got uh, the Persians, who are mentioned at the beginning of Daniel chapter 11. Uh, That goes into the Greeks, Alexander the Great. Uh, It then talks about the king of the south, which was the Ptolemies. It talks about that northern aspect, the Seleucids. Don't get lost on the names. (laughs) And then the Hasmoneans, or the Maccabees, who came and they resisted the Seleucid antagonism because one of the Seleucids, we'll talk about him, Antiochus Epiphanes, He came in and he desecrated the temple and they said, we've had enough. And so they rebelled and they tried to, well, they did, they reinstated the temple services and then a bit later on, of course, the Romans came and all this was in place so that eventually the conditions would be right for our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have a look at Daniel chapter 11. Here's the structure, here's the first uh, little bit of it. Um, Maybe I'll throw this, this whole section up. It's not too complicated. So we've got the Persian period in verses 1 and 2. talks about the four kings of Persia in verse 2. Then the uh, narrative introduces Alexander the Great. We'd be pretty familiar with that in uh, verse 3 and 4. It goes into the Grecian Empire that was divided into north and south. So you'd be familiar, hopefully, with the four generals. But eventually they consolidated the kings of north and south. And because they were generals, they... Well, they didn't sit in a chair and say, well, I'm king now. They just liked to fight each other because they were generals. So there's all this antagonism between the north and the south. So Ptolemies down in Egypt and, of course, the Seleucids up north in the Syrian area. So um, Daniel is, is, is describing, or the angel is describing from verse 10 through the end of verse 31, uh, this north-south confrontation. Then we've got a little period, and that was our reading tonight in verse 32 to 35, where we've got the, the Hasmoneans, who was called, well, they were also called the Maccabees, all right? Why the difference? Well, Maccabee means hammer, and basically they hammered, <laughs> modern term, they hammered the, the, the Syrians and uh, decimated them and moved them out of the way and established uh, some independence for the Jewish people up until the time that Rome was uh, in the land there, and that's where that happens in verse 36 to 39. Uh, the Roman influence, of course, which sort of continues on and will eventually confront the Lord Jesus Christ as in the latter day. So that's not a bad shot, snapshot of this 400-year, which we thought was blank. I mean, we turned from Malachi to Matthew and there's a blank page. With it. I wonder what happened there. <laughs> well, Daniel 11 is the chapter in which all this event happens. 
It was uh, an important aspect, and I'm just going to thread through why the angels set up these scenarios. And one of the things that we noticed was the Greek influence. So Alexander the Great, two generals, obviously Greeks, um, had a very powerful influence, and it's called Hellenization. And so that whole world become uh, unified with a common language, which was a wonderful thing as far as the development of the scriptures and the progression of the gospel was concerned. So this was part of this, this background work where the world began to speak Greek. And it became so popular that for 400 years, right into New Testament times, the Greek influence was very, very powerful. So as I said, to put it in a picture form, uh, you've seen this probably before, King of the North, King of the South, Jerusalem in the middle, Basically, they're going up and down that area, trampling over the Jews and uh, setting up the scene eventually for the appearance of John the Baptist and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, here's... We're not going to get stuck into all this, but you can sort of see what was happening. There's red arrows, you know, he's coming down, he's going up and down and up and down. So this was what was happening. It was a constant battle. One of the little, you know, homework things you might like to do when you're sitting at home thinking, I wonder what I should do with my next hour is to colour, and I've done this in my Bible, it's not particularly um, fluorescent, but I've got the red and the blue for the king in the south, so I know what's going on, all right? Because you, re you read this and it says, you know, he, he, he did this and he did that, and think, oh, I don't know, is that the king of the north or king of the south? <laughs> so it's not a bad little colouring in exercise. But that's um, essentially what was happening. So the rest of Daniel uh, chapter 11 is really preeminently about two generals king of the north, king of the south, and their battles. And the whole reason for that chapter is to show that in the end, it's going to be God's kingdom, God's power that's going to be established. So I find this a wonderful chapter because it, it tells me the angels are working and moving nations and powers so that I can have a place in God's kingdom that's going to stand forever. And that's a, an amazing thought. So lots of battles going on. Um, Alexander the Great, as we said, uh, died at a young age, 33. He only reigned for a short period of time. He was divided, or he divided his kingdom up. Well, he didn't, but they did after his death in verse 4, as you know, into four kingdoms. It says the four wings. So there's the four kingdoms, four generals of Alexander. One of them, of course, in verse 5, says the king of the south. So this uh, king of the south is Ptolemy Sota in verse 5, okay? Ptolemy Sota. So he was, he was the king down in the southern area. He dominated that whole region and, of course, Israel as well. Dealt fairly severely with the Jewish people. But uh, at the end of his reign, he was succeeded by Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, just to give his full surname because we obviously want to show some respect. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. Um, now, what's interesting... During this time, you think, oh, who cares about Egypt or what's the big deal about Egypt? Well, the Septuagint was written in this time, 250 years before Christ. Now, the Septuagint is really an important document, and I've got LXX because, well, that's the Roman numerals for 70. But in actual fact, uh, history tells us how verifiable it is, I'm not quite sure, tells us there are actually 72 Jewish translators Six from each of the 12 tribes. Yeah, I'm just doing my maths. Five, 12, and 60. Six, 12, and 72. <laughs> six from each of the tribes all translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek language. 
which was a really important uh, aspect of development a bit later on because, as we say, when the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel, he went out through the Roman Empire and, of course, many of them had access to Greek parchments, Greek texts. And do you remember, and here's a, a little interesting point, remember the Bereans? They tested the Apostle Paul by the scriptures. So they would have had copies, very possibly, of the Greek manuscripts. Well, they were you know, in the Jewish area. Uh, and when Paul came and, and propounded a particular doctrine, they said, you know what, we're going to check up on that. And it says they checked the scriptures to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was right. So it, it all began back here in BC 250 when they translated into the Septuagint. And this was the first, first Bible translation ever. It became accessible to a large population. And as we uh, think about this, Jesus might have had access to these parchments. So well, remember... Um, Mary and Joseph had to go down into Egypt and I've read the suggestion where they may have invested in some parchments for the Lord Jesus Christ to, to read, to learn to read. Uh, they had that gold, myrrh and frankincense. What happened to that? Well, maybe they, they bought some of the, the parchments in which Jesus could educate himself. Anyway, that's a, a side issue. But the other important thing about the Septuagint was and is it became a verification of the scripture. So... We have our, our Hebrew trans we have our Hebrew original, we have the Greek translation, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these are the major documents that verify the consistency of the scripture. So, you know, in the mouth of two or three, everything will be verified. There's a Septuagint. And this uh, commentator said um, at the end of his statement, it's very clear that Septuagint lies at the foundation of early Christianity. So it helped in the promotion and the development of the gospel message. So, little, you know, thing that happened in this 400 years of darkness. So, in our timeline, of course, we're coming to the Seleucids, which started to have domination right through the Middle East, 217 to 164 BC. So, uh, we have an introduction in verse 10 to Antiochus the Great. All right, so he goes, the narrative goes through to verse 20. It's Antiochus the Great. His successor was Seleucus Filiopater. And then, and this is where I'm going to talk about for a little bit of time, from verse 21. See, with, are, you, are you all happy we skipped over that history up to verse 21? <laughs> Not verse by verse, just a, a, a bit of a summary. So we're up to verse 21 already. Amazing. But verse 21 has a, a particularly interesting statement. It says, it's going to stand up, it's just over the page, top of the page, a vile person. There's going to stand up a vile person. So this is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, surname, a little bit of respect. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, 175 to 164 BC. He's a vile person because everything changed when he came to the throne. He's called the Nero of Jewish history because he basically steamrolled and smashed the people of Israel until the Maccabees had had enough and they stood up. So we might say that darkness gets its deepest here in this last section of Daniel chapter 11 with Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, he was such a proud person. There's a coin, and I've just put on there the translation. So you can see at the top, uh, Basilius, which means king, then Antiochus, and then down the bottom you'll see the word Theon, which means God, and Ephiphinon, which means the appearance of God. 
So this man was a very proud man and he described himself as, as a glorious deity, as God, basically God manifest or the illustrious one. This was his title that he took. Interestingly, the Jews changed his name to Epimanes, so not um, Epiphanes, Epimanes, which means a madman, all right? So they just went around saying Antiochus Epimanes, which means the madman, and he was a madman. So a little bit of background of what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He changed the high priesthood and he put in place a man called Ananias III. And then another guy called Menelaus uh, had a conversation with Antiochus and said, look, I can, I can give you a good deal. I'm happy to reward you if you make me high priest. And so Antiochus Epiphanes deposed the one that he originally set up and put Menelaus in place. Now you might think, who cares? What's the big deal about this Menelaus? You know what the big deal is? The legitimacy and the legacy of the high priest stopped right there. It was no longer hereditary. So Antiochus Epiphany now interrupted the legacy of the high priesthood and put into place whoever he wanted. And that became the starting point for how the high priesthood went on from there on. So when we come to the New Testament, now you understand why there's this, you know, Annas and Caiaphas and all the changes of the high priesthood, but because it wasn't a family descent thing, it was just whoever was the more powerful, whoever could write a deal with the um, administrators and get into that area. So you can see now that the nation of Israel really didn't respect so much the high priest and the priests because a lot of that was corrupt. And the position of the high priest was not one of respect as it was, you know, in the times of Aaron and his sons. It was just he happened to be the most influential person and he'd written a deal with, you know, Herod or whoever and now he was in control. So that's why this is really interesting here because Antiochus Epiphanes broke that legacy and from here on in the high priesthood was really a downward spiral. Right? So there's another little thing that was happening in the background. So that's why when the Lord Jesus Christ came and presented his teaching, people were listening to him because he was genuine and sincere. It wasn't like a, a paid corrupt position. So Antiochus Epiphanes was a very rough person. He devastated the Jewish people. And the Jewish people appealed to Ptolemy down in Egypt for help. We need some help. That's in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 11. They, they appeal to Ptolemy. And so a battle ensures, and it was Ptolemy VI at the time. He wasn't successful. He got overrun. But the city of Alexandrina, uh, Alexandria, sorry, I'm thinking of the place here in South Australia. Alexandria, the city resisted. And they held out and they appointed his brother, which is Ptolemy VIII, uh, to be their ruler. Now, his name was also Sycon, which you'd be really interested in because it means fat belly. So he was apparently pretty proud of his weight and he was very happy with the name Sycon, uh, fat belly. So um, he was down there. And so in verse 27, we read that uh, both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief and they shall speak lies one to another but it won't prosper. So there's this whole political conversation uh, and they wanted to, because Alexandria had resisted Antiochus, there was like a deal that was trying to be struck. It didn't quite work. So Antiochus now comes down to Egypt 
and he's going to steamroll into Egypt and express his power as well. However, in verse 29, one of the interesting things is, it says, at the time appointed he shall return, this is uh, the king of the north, Antiochus, and come to the south, but it won't be as the former or as the latter. And then verse 30 says, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him. Now this is Rome. Right, this is Rome now starting to grow and to develop and Egypt had negotiated a treaty with Rome. And so when Antiochus comes down, he is confronted by a Roman senator in a toga. And what happens there, this Roman senator's name, you'll you know, really be interested in this, it's Gaius Papilius Lanius. Right, so that again sounds very official. Gaius Papilius Lanius. He's a Roman senator. Uh, he comes down, he confronts Antiochus Epiphanes and says, Egypt has a deal with Rome and if you institute some aggression against Egypt, then Rome will take it on board that's an attack on them and Rome will be brought into this whole escalation process. So you need to think very carefully about what you're going to do with your troops. Are you going to attack Egypt and then trigger off a Roman incorporation? You need to go back home. So Antiochus says, well, you know what? I need to think about that. I'm going to go back to my men and I'm going to consult with them as to whether we should invade or what we should do. And you know what? Papilius drew a circle around... Antiochus IV in the sand and he says you need to make your decision before you step over that line and so that's where we get if you again a little bit of uh, trivia that's where we get to draw a line in the sand so you've probably heard that terminology you need to draw a line in the sand it actually dates back to this little historical incident uh, between these two men and of course Antiochus then went home because he's not going to take on the Roman emerging power. And he was really upset with himself uh, and there's what's called in psychology a displacement process, which means that if you're in a situation where you get really angry and you can't do anything about it, then a bit later on, take it out on somebody else. So, you know, I think they use the terminology, you know, I had a bad day at work, so I went and kicked a cat, um, which is probably not appropriate behaviour, but this is exactly what Antiochus did. He was really upset with himself, so he kicked the Jews. Right? He came back up to Jerusalem and he's going to take out his aggression on the Jewish people. And that's, that's what he does. So here, of course, in this little section here, uh, it now outlines what he did as he comes back through. He's very angry. He just decimates the nation and particularly Jerusalem and the temple itself. He instigates some horrific activity as far as the temple is concerned. So you'll notice there in verse uh, 30, it says, uh, this is from the ESV, just to make it a little bit easier, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple, I'll talk about that, and they're going to take away the regular bird offering. So he banned it. Again, he says he's going to set up the abomination that makes desolate. He set up uh, an idol to Zeus there in the temple. You can imagine how offended the Jewish people would be he set up this idol of Zeus. In fact, he offered a pig there as well, just a, you know, icing on the cake. Um, he will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So some Jews, of course, moved across to be under his influence and to support him. Now, here's the point we come to the Maccabees, which is really interesting. It says, the people who know God will stand up. 
So the Maccabees are a period in history where the family of the priest actually stood up and confronted and developed an army that eventually became successful against Antiochus. But first of all, he comes up and he offers a pig in the temple. Can you imagine how the Jewish people would think about that? I mean, that was just absolute intimidation. So here's a list of what Antiochus put in place. He outlawed circumcision. That's basically Jewish identity. Uh, he banned the Sabbath and he festivals. He forced Jews to eat pork. Uh, pagan sacrifices were mandated. He changed the name of God to Zeus Olympus. He plundered, he went into the temple to see what was there and you know, anything that was of value he'd take. He banned Jews from assembling for prayer. You can't study the scriptures or the Torah. And he left troops out there uh, as he made his way back home to carry out a terror campaign. So you can see how the Jewish people would be quite offended. And Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, was, as we said, the Nero of Israel. He's now going to meet some resistance. He killed 80,000 Jews. He shut down the temple for actually 2,300 days, which Daniel prophesied about in chapter 8. So we have the history of what the Maccabees did in a book called well, the Maccabees, <laughs> Maccabees book one and two. And what's interesting about this is another little sort of thing that happened in this blank period of time is the Apocrypha was developed and incorporated and it's in some Bible. So you might, you might have heard of this term Apocrypha. So you'll just see it there in red. There's a photo of a Bible and in that red there's 14 books of the Apocrypha. And you might be thinking, what's all that about? Well, the Apocrypha was uh, some historical books that were not deemed to be consistent and not part of the canon of Scripture. But the Roman Catholic Church has taken them and incorporated them in their Bibles. Okay? So the Jewish people and, and historians of the time looked at all the, the writings said they aren't consistent, uh, they're not Scripture. And so we've got, well, it means to be hidden away, not because it was hidden away, but it's actually questionable. So it needed to be in the view of uh, the Jewish um, people that assembled the Bible, of course, not consistent with Scripture. Uh, so they're called Judah-Canonical, <laughs> which is another amazing word, uh, or Second Canon. So they're not in the original uh, Scriptures that we hold as the pure Word of God. Roman Catholic uh, Bibles, you'll find them. No, and this is a lecture in itself, but no New Testament writers ever quote from the Apocrypha. You'd be thinking there's some validity if one of the New Testament writers quoted from, say, you know, one of the books, but they don't. So even the New Testament writers didn't account them as authentic. They were rejected as spurious writings. There was inaccuracies, inconsistencies and false teachings that weren't in alignment with God's word. And so therefore they're not considered to be inspired. Interesting historical facts. So they're okay to read, but they're definitely not in alignment with the scriptures of truth. So there's a whole lot of books. So Ezra's Maccabees, which we talked about, History of the Jews. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the Wisdom of Solomon and some of the other statements, a letter of Jeremiah, one from Barak, uh, a few other little uh, pieces of information, and then there's some other stories. Again, not verifiable as to their authenticity as far as the Scriptures are concerned. So here's another great word. <laughs> I've got to practice this one myself. Pseudopigraphica. No, pseudopigrapha. 
I'll have to say that. Pseudo-prographa, no, pseudo. <laughs> so, you know, what a great word to uh, compress down. So it just means it's written by someone else. Pseudo, meaning, you know, obviously somebody else has done it. It's not, it's a fake, it's not real. So you'll see there under that heading, um, we've got, you know, the books of Adam and Eve and, um, you know, other things like that. So people have written a fictional book and put it, you know, by Adam or by Eve, hoping to, you know, obviously sell copies, <laughs> but um, not verifiable at all. So we just need to be aware, aware that there were historical books uh, written at the time and those books, the Apocrypha particularly, were rejected as not being authentic. Anyway, back to the second of Maccabees book. So the history of the Maccabees is in those books and when Antiochus came down, uh, he forced one particular family, a mother and her seven sons, to eat pig. All right? And this was abhorrent to the Jewish people. They refused to do it and so they were put to death. They chose martyrdom rather than succumb to the uh, power of Antiochus. So this horrified many of the faithful, we might even say brothers and sisters in the truth. There were people who still had the truth. And this is this verse 32, which I think is a really fantastic verse for us. And we could take this basically as a mantra for ourselves and our lives. It says, the people that know their God will stand firm and take action. So here's the Maccabees trying to develop a faithfulness as far as the principles of God are concerned. The people who know their God. And despite the conditions around them, they stood firm in their principles. Now, I think that echoes down to us today, doesn't it? You know, we're being assaulted, whether, you know, we're at uni, we're at school, we're at work, by this uh, social tsunami of, you know, do what's right in your own eyes and who cares, anything. We, we're trying to stand up for principles. So this same e event echoes down to us, really, and, you know, we have to stand up for what we believe in. So it's not so much about guns and fighting uh, and resisting physically the enemy, but certainly pressure from society and pressure around us to discard the principles of God. So verse 33 of Daniel chapter 11 uh, talks about their particular activity. It says, They that stand among the people shall instruct many, uh, but they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. So there's this underground resistance that's uh, happening. Uh, verse 34 says they'll be helping with a little help. So here's the Maccabean revolt coming in. Verse 35 is, again, another beautiful verse. Some of them that understand shall fail to try them and to purge and to make them white. Now, the King James is not very easy to understand, so I've got, um, I think this is the ESV. It says, some of those who are wise will suffer so that God will make them pure and acceptable for the end, which shall come at the time he's decided. That's like a, a little exhortation for Daniel here at the end of verse 35. And you see this word, um, I think it's the word to, even, yes, even the word, it's the word to, it should be crossed out, it should be the word for, all right? It's not that they're going to be tried to the time of the end, it's for the time of the end, it's for the kingdom, it's so they get a place in the kingdom. So there were faithful men and women who tried to stand up for God's principles that Daniel says they're going to suffer but they're going to be made pure through their faith and that's for the time of the end, for the kingdom. They'll be re receivers of the kingdom. So the time of the end. Now that's a phrase that's in chapter 11 again and verse 40, isn't it? 
See that phrase? We're picking up from that verse 35, time of the end. Here it is in verse 40, and at the time of the end, right? And it's in chapter 12 and verse 4. Thou, Daniel, shut up the words, seal up the book, even unto the time of the end. It's again in verse 9, until the time of the end, and it's in verse 13 as well. Go thy way until the end be. So you can see that thread there that is telling at least faithful Maccabeans will eventually receive a place in the kingdom because they stood up for their principles. And it says there in verse 35, at the time appointed, a couple of references for, the, for your margin, time appointed, Psalm 102, verse 13 to 16, says there, and at the appointed time, God will favour Zion. And Acts 17, verse 31, God has appointed a day in which you'll judge the world. All right, so all pointing to the future. Well, these Maccabees, who were they? Here's a bit of a family tree. I'm not going to go through it. I'm just going to highlight Judas Maccabeus. Might have heard of his name. He, uh, he was nicknamed the Hammer because he was a very powerful individual. And that follows the Maccabean uh, or Hasmonean family down, tree down through the, to, to the time of Rome. All right, so they came out, they got independence for Israel through their resistance and, of course, it filtered down through the time of uh, the Roman influence in the Middle East. So uh, Judas Maccabeus, here he is here, and uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what happened on this particular occasion. So there was uh, a revolt and Judas Maccabeus gathered some men and... Over a number of years, they used guerrilla tactics and military strategy to undermine the power of the uh, Seleucid Empire, we might say, and gain independence. And of course, on one particular day, 25th of Kislev, BC 164, Judas Maccabeus uh, took over Jerusalem, took over the temple, cleaned it out, and the story goes that the, there was a lampstand there. They wanted to light it on this particular occasion. They couldn't find any oil. They found one flask, which would have been enough to only go for one day. They put that oil into the lampstand. They lit it up, and miraculously, it went for eight days. So this now becomes a historical feast that's celebrated uh, by the Jewish people. So huh, I probably should have put that slide in a different spot, but... I actually did a talk on this 46 years ago I, when I was sort of thinking about, oh, okay, I've got to do a talk on Daniel 11 and Maccabees. I think I did something a while ago. I looked back on my notes, 46, 46 years ago, it's almost like the 400 years of darkness. And you know, see, it's pretty funny. MIC class, mutually improvement, look at the, it's got there 10 minutes. <laughs> if only I could these days. But, so, you know, 10 minutes was like a lifetime back then when you're doing your first talk. So there you go, bit of trivia for you. But this is um, Hanukkah. And this is the Feast of Lights, which the Jewish people celebrate uh, because of Judas Maccabeus and the great victory that he achieved over the Seleucid power, gave independence to the Jews. And, of course, you can see behind the scenes here they're wanting change, they're wanting some illumination, they're wanting light, they're wanting teaching, because everything's fallen apart, everything's corrupted. So this is, therefore, setting that particular scene. So... Now I want you to go, we're going to go to another quotation in the New Testament that has a thread back to this 400 years of darkness and in fact to the events of Judas Maccabeus. And I'm going to come across to John chapter 10. 
because we've got a reference here to this particular event. And you might not have ever known this, but it's like hidden almost in the narrative. So we're coming across to John chapter 10. And it's in verse 22. All right, this is a reference to an event that happened in the blank page time period. Verse 22 of John 10 says, And it was Jerusalem. Here it comes, the Feast of Dedication. It was winter. Now, we've read that narrative probably quite a few times. You know, what was the Feast of Dedication? We probably presumed it was some sort of, you know, religious festival that was back in the Old Testament. No, this is the Hanukkah. This is the Feast of Lights. This is the event of Judas Maccabeus in that dark period of time. And you'll notice in the context, of course, there's a big argument as to who Jesus was. It goes on to, you know, there's this discussion, who do you think you are? And it's in that context of Judas Maccabeus because the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who was like Judas Maccabeus, who's going to come with great power and he's going to crush the Roman enemy and he's going to be victorious. That's the Messiah that they were looking for in the form of Judas Maccabeus and Jesus was not going to be that at all. So even here they had a distorted view as to the Messiah. Well, just checking back into history again, and I'm not going to go into all this, but here I've just highlighted this interesting little facet. You see this here? It's Herod the Great. We'd be familiar with Herod the Great. Time of Jesus. We're now jumped into the New Testament. Light's beginning to appear. Well, he married into the Hasmonean family. And there's, uh, across just to the, to the left, is Mariam. And he married, she was a Hasmonean. She was from the family of Judas Maccabeus. So you sometimes wonder, well, how did Herod get involved in the Jewish people? Well, he actually married into the Hasmonean lineage. So that's just, you know, again, uh, a little interesting facet. Now, we're not going to go back to Daniel chapter 11, but Daniel 11 verse 32, we quote it, says, there'll be people who will be corrupted by flattery. Right, that's a little phrase. People corrupted by flattery. The point I want to make was this... At that point, back in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, was when the scribes and the Pharisees first emerged as a movement. All right? So we're setting the scene because, well, you'd be familiar with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the time of Christ. They were very powerful. Back in the time, the blank page time, the time of darkness, this is when they were first established. And, of course, um, they went on two divergent uh, lines really the Pharisees were called the separated ones they were you know of Jewish origin the Sadducees called themselves the righteous ones they lent more to the Hellenistic sort of environment and really were not concerned so much with the Old Testament as with the Pharisees they viewed the Torah just the five books the Sadducees only viewed the five books as well they're the important ones everything else is just an add-on uh, and you, you can see the contrast there in the end Pharisees were, were people in the synagogues and the Sadducees were the aristocratic, you know, the ruling party because they were more connected politically with whoever happened to be in Israel at the time. So at that blank page point, that's where those two groups developed their views and eventually, of course, became quite powerful in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm thinking this is, this is painting a little bit of background stuff to why these people were there, how they emerged and where they came from. So that's an important development as well. So... We're getting now to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can see that the people of Israel have been trampled on, they've been steamrolled, they've been broken. And we get to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's a massive amount of different groups. 
Now, you might have thought that when John the Baptist began his ministry, there was a unified nation. They all want to listen to John the Baptist. Well, let me tell you who's there. We've got the Sadducees. There's a group of them and people that were connected to them. There were the Pharisees. We talked about them. They've got their little favourite group as well. We've got the lawyers. There's another group. We've got the scribes. There's another group. There's the Herodians, the political party. We've got the Essenes, who were very fundamental out there in the, in the desert. We've got the Zealots. We've got the soldiers. We've got Herod. What a confusing time. And out of all that mix of confusion that had been created over this 400 years of darkness, there's going to come a shining light, first of all, I guess, in the ministry of John the Baptist and then in the teaching and personality of Jesus Christ. What a massive contrast. What a massive contrast. What a beautiful contrast. Those angels worked hard for 420 years to develop that atmosphere for John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So what have we learnt tonight? Here's the summary. The long darkness gave added emphasis to the prophetic light and ministry of Christ. It was such a contrast. You know, when Christ got down to grassroots level and he talked to people about their lives and their health and what future he could offer, that was meaningful to them. And they emerged out of all that confusion, all those different groups and theories, just like today. You go on the internet and try and find something, you come away confused because there's so many different theories and pieces of information. The powerful, finding war, powerful finding final warnings of Malachi and Nehemiah lingered through that darkness. There was faithful people, they were thinking about those final warnings of apathy and they need to redevelop themselves. Daniel 11 shows the incredible, specific detail the angels were still working at through that period of time. It wasn't rest time for them. Translation of the Septuagint allowed access to an expansion of the scriptures. People could read it, could be put all over the Roman Empire there in New Testament times. Faithful men and women, like the Maccabees, Hasmoneans, resisted and stood firm in their faith during dark times. Their faith was developed. As we said, there were numerous factions developed that sowed confusion amongst the people. So now they're in anticipation of someone to give light and solidarity and a message of hope. There was a growing expectation of Messiah's appearance. People were ready for it. 70-year prophecy. The numbers were sort of crunching through and it's about time for the Messiah to appear. And, of course, here we have Pax Romana, peace of the Roman Empire that brought together a common language, the Roman road system which enabled transport and movement, law and order, and that enabled from then on the gospel to spread significantly. So I want you to take away a personal lesson from this time of darkness. The people that know their God will stand firm and take action. That's us. All right? We want to know the scriptures. We want to know God. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. We want to disregard the darkness that's out there. And, of course, those that are wise will be tried. And all of us, young and old, are being tested by today's world. So there's three points, four points I want to make. Be grateful for the Bible. I mean, it's an amazing book. It outlines incredible history, bringing us from the time of sort of Adam and Eve all the way, the angels working all the way through to create a kingdom so that we can be the inhabitants of that. Angels are working actively behind the scenes. You know, the last, as I said, two or three years, amazing what we're seeing. Absolutely incredible. Third point, no compromise. No compromise. The Maccabees stood up uh, to the Seleucids and said, we've had enough. There's not going to be any pig in our temple. We've had enough. We're going to stand up for our values. That's us in today's world. 
The world today wouldn't care less if a pig was offered anywhere because it's all like relative and, well, if you're okay with that, I'm okay with it. But we have to stand up for our values. And finally, the beautiful point is that Jesus is going to come at exactly the right time. Those 400 years of darkness, Jesus emerged at exactly the right time. You know, I want you to come to another page. I want you to come to another blank page. Right at the end of your Bibles, Revelation 22, there's another blank page. Those 400 years of silence were broken by a beautiful message. You know what it was broken by? It was an angel talking to Zechariah. It was an angel talking to Mary. It was an angel giving a message to Joseph. It was a bunch of angels singing to the shepherds. Isn't that wonderful? After that 400-year blank period where they've been working actively behind the scenes, then comes the message from the angel to these individuals and to the shepherds. How encouraging that would be. Here we are at the back page, Revelation 22. You know what, just hold that page. Because while you're holding it, there's 1,900 years of darkness right there. 1,900 years of darkness. We thought that this age of darkness only related to the Jewish people. It relates to us as well. We're living in a time where not 400 years of darkness... 1,900 years of darkness since the writing of the scripture. So we're connected to this whole period of time. 1,900 years of very disruptive darkness. But you know what? There's going to come light and there's going to come a dawning. There's going to come the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Light is dawning. And how wonderful for us to be associated with the scriptures and with these wonderful hopes and with the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we prepare, as we look back to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, and how people were preparing for the emergence of Messiah, that lesson echoes to us today. Are you prepared? Are you ready? We've got to take these points here. Grateful for the Bible. Angels are working in our lives. No compromise. And Jesus is returning to take you and me into his kingdom. How thankful we can be for that. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.